Hello and welcome to Seabird. I am John Herlig. Your listenership has put us in the top 10% of all podcasts worldwide. You folks have listened to us in 39 of the United States and in 34 countries from around the world. You're listening in Moscow and Manitoba, in Lisbon, in Bavaria, in Zurich, and in Cape Town. And we appreciate every single one of you. If you're enjoying what we do, take a moment sometime and just share an episode with a friend. Have you ever dreamed of sailing away on a boat? You can make your boating life better, safer, and more comfortable by signing up for the free weekly newsletter at our sponsor, theboatgalley.com. My guest this week is Banff Luther. Growing up near the Outer Banks in North Carolina on the east coast of the United States, Banff was a sailor and a dreamer who eventually decided to pry himself out of the rat race and live a more meaningful life. He founded a Charleston, South Carolina company called Ohm Sailing Charters, which he operated for years, taking groups out for sunset sails around Charleston Harbor. Banff has known loss in his life, including losing a home to a devastating house fire and losing his father unexpectedly early. But these losses have simply fueled him on, motivating him to never let his foot off the gas as he pursues happiness and value in everyday life. Banff shared his story with me from his recently renovated Airstream trailer where he lives in the mountains of North Carolina. So cue the band. Let's do this. This is Seabird, stories from remarkable people. I'm Bamf Luther. I was the guy that lived on a boat for 20 years and then gave it all up and moved to the mountains. I'm not sure if that makes you my hero or not. <laughs> Bamf Luther, welcome to Seabird. You are a sailor, a charter captain who did more than a thousand charters, correct? Correct. Car racer, a yep. vintage Airstream restorer, a newly minted country gentleman uh are you a musician can you play any instruments i mean the list is long you know that's one of the things i don't do i can fix anything i can build anything but when it comes to instruments i might be able to build it but i don't think i can play it <laughs> knowing your limitations is important um tell me about your childhood and your parents specifically um you you grew up near the Outer Banks, correct me if I'm wrong. I did. Elizabeth City, North Carolina, about 45 minutes from uh, Kitty Hawk where we had a cottage and spent most of my summers in, at Milepost 2 and right there, right near where I met you at your coffee shop. And um, once a year, my dad would bring us all up to the mountains for a week or two because my grandfather was from Asheville. And, um, you know, I just found, my, found the love of Asheville and the mountains, but also the love of the ocean. And... Um, 
They've, they've been competing with each other all my life. Anyone who has ever been to the Outer Banks has to have chuckled when you said milepost two. Um, describe the Outer Banks for me, for, for anyone who might never have been there. How would you describe the Outer Banks? Or hang on, describe the Outer Banks of, of your childhood. The Outer Banks of my childhood, you know, there was large swaths of just beach. There was, it was pretty busy even when I was a kid. Think of 90 miles of beach with maybe a mile to two miles to three miles wide and run north and south and anything was possible basically. This is kind of the dream. It was a graveyard of Atlantic. I was a diver. I actually got my um, diving certificate when I was like, I think I was too young for them to give me a junior diver certificate. <laughs> so, but yeah, to be able to walk off the beach with the scuba gear and jump in the water and find a wreck, that was like the imagination of a kid that just drove me crazy. No, I just love that. Your first name is Banff, like the National Park in Alberta, Canada. Were you named after the park? Do you know? <clears throat> Most definitely was. Are you, are you sick of the question? Well, you know, when I waited tables, that was the one thing <laughs> that, um, you know, everyone was just like, wait, they either knew it or they didn't. They're like, what? Or like, oh, that's like my Canada. Were you conceived there? <laughs> everyone had their little joke and there was like five of them. So I ended up getting to the point where I just didn't introduce myself. I would say, hey, how are you? I'm, uh, oh, no, I would be like, hi, my name is Banff. Um, welcome to such and such. What can I get you to drink? <laughs> in the early 2000s, you were, I believe, living in that cottage at Milepost 2, weren't you? I was, and I was in the um, I was in the beginning phases of finding my boat. And um, I had moved from the I was living in the mountains from the mid-90s and had a little bit way too much fun up here and uh, ended up having to get out of town for a little bit. And with the ideas of, like, I was moving to the beach and I was gonna buy a sailboat and I was gonna live on it. And this was 99, 1999. And everybody thought I was like, oh, full of shit. And then one day I went back and I was like, look, I bought a boat. Down Easter, was it, 32? That was a um, Cabot 36. Oh, Cabot 36. Why did I think you had a Down Easter? I don't know either. They all look about the same. <laughs> you were, what, what were you doing to support yourself when you first moved back to the beach around the turn of the century? I was waiting tables. That's what I did through my 20s. And once I discovered sailing and once I discovered that I could go to the Bahamas in 2000, 2002 that I went to the Bahamas my first trip. And after I discovered that, that I could go under my own you know, power and it cost me less than $1,000 a month to live, I was hooked. And from that point forward, I wouldn't take a serious job that I couldn't give up in the winter to head off to the islands. So you waited tables as a means to an end to keep the rest of the of the annual life going, which was the joy of That's right. setting off towards the Bahamas yep. for however many months that was. Were you happy with that yin and yang of, of working and then ducking out and then coming back to work? Or, or were you the whole time wishing... It was something else and somehow more, no, more, more permanently uh, on the side of the coin that got you what you wanted. Yeah, I mean, it was always the ambition of, and I'm still on that ambition. You know, I'm still working that plan. I'm still, still working it hard where I'm trying to get to the point where I'm going to have enough passive income to be able to say, fuck it, I'm gone and I don't have to come back. Because I've always had to come back. I've always had a date of like, okay. 
Yep, I got to be back in March. And, and forgive me, I don't know. It, at this point in time in the early 2000s, um, were your parents still with you? I don't know if they are now, were then. Yeah, they were uh, They were both around. Um, they both supported this. You know, they they thought I'd never never last. My dad was like, ah, oh, you'll last a year. But they, they were the ones that signed the note that helped me get the boat. Um, you know, I borrowed $42,000 at a five-year note and worked my ass off to get it paid off because I knew that you can't really travel with the debt. And so I worked really hard on that and um, got it paid down. And, you know, I would pay it. I would, but when I went on trips, I would go in and make all the payments up front. Um, but yeah, they supported it. And then after five or six years, it just became, that's just what I did. And then 10 years later, then 15 years later, then 20 years later. So um, it turned into a career down the road. Um, but initially it was waiting tables. Well, the Outer Banks, you know how it is. There's nothing. You serve coffee, you serve drinks, you serve beer, you food, serve food, or you, ba- you bang nails. That's all you can do. Or you bang nails. That is, that is in fact, pretty much it. What was your boat's name, that first boat? Blue Magic. Blue Magic. How many times did you take Blue Magic to the Bahamas? Blue Magic and I went to the Bahamas, I believe, five, five times. You were living in Kitty Hawk in uh, your parents' cottage at, at Milepost 2 when, if I recall correctly, a, a really, really terrible tragedy befell your life in that house. Um, when, when was that and what can you tell me about what, what happened with that? Yeah, so that was, um, so I guess I met you in 99 or 2000. And um, then in 2003, I believe it was, uh, I had the boat on the hard and I was doing a bunch of, I was doing a major renovation. I was doing a refit after my first trip to the Bahamas, realizing that all the things that I needed to do. And um, I was staying there. We had, me and the girlfriend at the time had headed back to Wanchi's to walk, work on the boat and the house caught on fire and burned everything. Luckily, all the boat stuff was in storage, but I lost all my clothes, all my... Yeah. <laughs> Wait, hold up. Forgive me. Only only a sailor could say that. That's right. My house just burnt down, but luckily all my boat stuff was in storage. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, he gives a going. shit about clothes. Like, I can replace clothes. Like, all my boat <laughs> stuff, my sails, my rigging. Like, okay, that shit's got to be safe, man. You were down in uh, One Cheese is where your boat was hauled? Yep. Down at the uh, Spencer Yachts. Spencer Yacht Yard. And after that refit took off to the Bahamas again with said girlfriend? Said girlfriend and I went to the Bahamas. The plan was to move to Charleston or sail into Charleston together. Um, said plan got changed and I sailed into Charleston by myself. <laughs> <laughs> As sometimes does happen. Um, have you cruised all of the Bahamas? I know you've done the Abacos. Oh yeah, Abacos, uh, Luthra, Exumas. I think I, I've sailed past every island chain i think i've stopped just about in every one <laughs> it's it's a good thing if you have to think that hard about what spots you might not have hit how was and and maybe this question's already been answered by the fact that you cha- sailed into charleston uh by yourself but how did she take to the sailing life it's it's hard i mean it's hard to explain to people how much you don't get to choose your weather and how you can't turn on the fan or the air conditioner and, and, and how sometimes in the midst of all that glory and all that beauty, it can, it can really suck. And it's, it's hard to get people prepared for it. I'm not trying to talk it down. 
it's where it's where my heart is as well. But but that's a lot different than easy. Sailing is life, but it is life to the extremes, the absolute extremes. You have those those moments where those sun shines and you just saw the green flash and it's picture perfect and you've got people all around you and you're all having a great dinner and like you're in the middle of nowhere and you're uh, you just killed a hogfish that was 10 pounds big i mean <laughs> like there are just these moments of like pure absolute bliss and then without notice the next day that night a week from then you're like what the fuck am i doing out here man like i'm getting ready to lose everything like my life is getting ready to end uh, something just broke or like you know and then, yeah, you're you're dragging in the middle of the night because of a storm blew up and you're getting ready to go into the rocks. I mean, it's it's life to the extreme. You sailed back and long story short, doesn't matter how you got to Charleston alone, but you you ended up coming back and relocating to Charleston with Blue Magic, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. Were you living aboard the boat when you first got to Charleston? Oh, I've never moved off the boat. I literally for 20 years didn't live in a house, maybe for a month at a time when I was in a boatyard. Right. Um, but I never did never did not live on the boat. So when I moved to Charleston, I went back and waited tables for about a year. And then I knew the reason to move to Charleston was to, to be able to do something else. And yacht maintenance, I knew, was a, was a way in. A new means to an end. So Charleston was a place where you could immerse yourself in the boat world. Yeah. And have a little bit less of that both sides of the coin and a little bit more of all boat all the time, even if it wasn't all cruising. Exactly. Is that a fair way to put it? Yep. Great sailing. Um, you did yacht maintenance. Did you have a, a, a particular area that you specialized in or, or, or jack of all trades, as so many of us do over time with boats? Well, I mean, yeah, I was definitely jack of all trades, but um, initially, I um, I was the head guy. I was the guy that wasn't scared to go into a boat and completely redo the redo the system. I was the one that pulled them all apart, and I've seen some nasty stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did that for twelve years. The reason I was so successful there was multiple reasons, but you know, a I. I Someone called me. I said I was going to show up at 10 o'clock. I showed up at 9.55. And I may not have known what I was doing in the vast majority of the time. I had no clue what I was doing. But I wasn't scared to take it apart. And I wasn't scared to figure it out. And I also wasn't scared to um, make a phone call and call tech support. <laughs> um, I, I believe they call that humility. Exactly. Um, and and yeah. after the, the the number of years that I've been involved in the boating world, if you said you were going to be there at 10 and got there at 945, you are on a short, short list already, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a friend of mine, um, Brad Gunn, who uh, had a huge effect on my life. I was one of the first people I met sailing in Mantio, uh, where I moved. He was the dock master there. And um, he taught me a lot about sailing, a lot about uh, rigging, a lot about everything. Uh, he's just kind of a jack-of-all-trades himself. But when we were in the Bahamas one time, he introduced me as like, yep, Bamf's one of those guys that when he doesn't know something, he'll admit it. And it never came to me until he introduced me like that. I'd never really thought about it. But sometimes you just got to admit, hey, I don't know what this is. Can you tell me? Could not agree more. Okay, we're up against a quick break. You are listening to Seabird. We're talking today with Banff Luther, and we will be right back. 
Whether it's learning the right way to tie off to a mooring ball or mastering how to eat well, even though you have a just stupidly, ridiculously tiny refrigerator on your boat, theboatgalley.com is where you need to go to learn how to make life on a boat better, easier, more successful, and more comfortable. It makes no difference if you've lived aboard for 10 years or if boating is just a dream for you. Carolyn at the Boat Galley has answers to everything you need to know to learn how to live on a boat or to simply learn how to boat better. What you need to do is this. You need to sign up for her newsletter. I have been on that list since 2013. Go to theboatgalley.com, G-A-L-L-E-Y, theboatgalley.com. Click on subscribe to the newsletter and toss your email address in there. It is free. It is informative. And Carolyn is not going to spam you and is not going to sell your email address. You will be on your way. Every journey has a first step. Take your first step at theboatgalley.com. Welcome back to Seabird. I'm John Hurley. We're talking today with Banff Luther, he of sailing and charter captaining and Porsche racing and mountain living and airstream renovating fame. And if it's not fame yet, Banff, maybe it will be soon. Um, so you you came back to Charleston um, on Blue Magic. We're doing yacht work. And then at some point got motivated to uh, trade up to a catamaran and start chartering. What inspired that change? And, and, and what were you hoping to get from it or fix in your life with it to, to, to make better money, to be able to be done at five o'clock and not be greasy? What, what was that change going to bring you? Chartering doesn't end at five o'clock; it begins at five o'clock. So you can you can take that out of the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, starting um, at five. Starting at five. Not not the worst thing either, as long as you can get your days and nights straight. I knew that I was going to be doing something. I had to, I, again back to Brad Gunn. I'd always wanted another boat, and I wanted a bigger boat. And Brad got a Lagoon Thirty, um, a TPI Lagoon Thirty Seven. Uh, really great little boat and I just kind of fell in love with cats at that point and I always wanted a cat I was like okay because I mean after a while 36 feet gets kind of small after 10 years um, you're, you're like okay I'm either going to move off the boat and move on to land or I got to get a bigger <laughs> boat and uh, so I got my first catamaran which was a 38 foot Manta um, I'm just going to say it's a POS and I'm going to leave it at that Works for me. Um, I have no opinion. <laughs> I am confessedly not on Team Catamaran, but I don't judge, so keep going. Uh, then um, I ended up buying a, um, a Leopard 43, which is a superior, awesome, beautiful boat. Um, and I bought it, and it was, it was a big investment. It was a large, large amount of money that I was putting down for this, and I knew I had to do something with it. I knew that I had to charter it. And long term, the goal was to charter uh, in the islands uh, for week long charters. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I kind of underestimated the fact that I really don't like people that much. <laughs> Maybe this is why we've always gotten along so well. <laughs> I, I could never 
ever do those long-term charters ever. So was was the uh, we'll, we'll call it for now, and I'm I'm not dumbing it down. Forgive me, we'll, but the the Charleston, you know, sunset charter cruises were they just a means to pay for the boat? You wanted the boat, and that was the 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 available means to to fund it. Um, it was a little bit of all of it. I mean, luckily I was luckily unluckily. You gotta you gotta you gotta watch watch what you ask for in life, and reason being. Um, I wanted a catamaran. I wanted a catamaran. I was like, I'll do anything to get a catamaran. I was like, I want, I want a bigger boat. <laughs> and the ability for me to get a catamaran came about with the death of my dad. Um, he died, left me some money, and that gave me the ability to buy a boat. So when you ask for things and you want things desperately, and you're like, I'll do anything for that, you'll get it. You may not like how you got it. Perhaps at a price. It's always a price. There's always a price for everything. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a fact of life, a circle of life. There, death happens, life and death. It's, we're not getting away from it. And he died with his boots on, doing something he loved, and he died quickly. I thank him for that every day because I've seen death the other way where it's slow and slow and misery. And, you know, I'll take a quick death any day with my boots on doing what I want to love. Sure. I'm good with that. Yeah. I'm all about that. But so I, I had a paid off boat. I didn't have to. I didn't have to. Um, I, you know, with, also with me being a, a hustler and a businessman, I made it happen. Like, you know, I made these things happen and then I created it and I got the catamaran knowing that I was going to do chartering and get into the bigger boat, the more comfortable boat. And... You know, and then I, like I said, I didn't, I didn't want to do the long term. So I realized, but by doing enough charters during the summer in Charleston, eight months out of the year, nine months out of the year, I could still have my winters off and not have to do a thing. Well, that's the Outer um, Banks lifestyle right there. I mean, yeah, it, like I said, it began, my creation of my dream began in the mountains here of wanting that and then moving and getting that boat and living that lifestyle of the Outer Banks and I have never given that lifestyle up. You've got this awesome business and this boat for which you paid in a number of ways a hefty price. What, what brought it to a close? What made you say, okay, it's time for a next chapter. I want to sell the boat, sell the business. It's time to do something else or was there something else that crept into your life and was calling at you so loudly that you had to sell the business and the boat to to get to it you know i think sometimes you have to give up what you love to get back to what you love and i lost the love of sailing because because sailing became a job and a drag it became a job and i had no desire to sail another mile for fun um right it became a job it became a chore you know, you're sailing 4,000 miles. What was it? Um, I think it's three, 4,000 miles a year in the harbor, which is an entire trip to the Bahamas mm. uh, and back or more. Um, so, yeah, I just got to the point where it just was second nature. It wasn't fun for me anymore. And I knew that this was the end of that. And for a while there, I was like, okay, I got to figure out a way to keep the boat. It's just like I want it. It's just the way I want it. Um, you know, I can't give up the boat, but how can I sustain this idea of 
Well, I guess I can flip back a little bit. I mean, I, although I was doing these sailing charters and I was making really good money for the first time in my life, I also was investing in, in Asheville. I was investing in Airbnbs. Um, I was investing in houses and things like that. Um, so I had a condo, I had a house that I turned into an Airbnb and I realized there's my end game. Um, my end game is to buy more houses, set them up so that they're renting and paying me. You know, the best money in the world is a check in the mail. And that's what I, my end goal was. So over the time it developed into, and then last year I realized that I have to give up the boat to do this. Um, because the boat was costing me about $30,000 a year. Uh, maintenance, dockage, insurance mm-hmm. is right at around 30000 And for it to be sitting in Charleston unused, it's a boat. You can't right. do that. So I uh, gave it up, and I know that in three years' time period, I will probably go back, and I don't know. I don't know what I'll end up on next time. I know it won't be. Uh, it's. It's. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, maybe I. Maybe I'll come up with a way to make the money, but you know, <laughs> it's. We'll it's hard to predict three years from now. Let's. Let's deal with the now because I find your now right really really exciting. Hold on a second while I get it all wrong. So you sold the boat and you sold the business. I assume yep. it doesn't really matter that the, the the boat is no longer yours and therefore the business is no longer yours. Whatever that was. Yep. Let me. Know know if I get any of this wrong. You got property in the mountains in rural western North Carolina. Is that the Smoky Mountains, I suppose? Yep, it is. 60 some odd acres, 60 something? Uh, Yep. I just bought, I sold that condo that I had and I bought 60 acres up in Barnardsville, North Carolina, just 22 minutes north of Asheville. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's a terrible area. Very, very unattractive. Horrible. <laughs> yeah, unless you like trees and hills and, 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 and uh, yeah. Mountains and snow and things. Okay. And you got an Airstream. Yep. I just fully restored my second Airstream. I had an Airstream that I, that was my first Airbnb was a 32-foot Airstream that I somewhat restored. I didn't do a full renovation, but I, I restored it. And that was kind of my first introduction of like, okay, this is the way I'm going to make my money. <laughs> yeah, okay. Is the Airstream currently your home? Uh, at the moment, no. I'm in a house at the moment, um, which is under contract and soon to be okay. sold. And I will be moving into the fully renovated. I gutted that thing um, and uh, will soon be in that. So I'm looking forward to getting the last finishing touches on that, which is the countertops and... Um, then I'll be living in that in about two, three weeks. So we got the the 60-odd acres up in the mountains that I'm going to assume probably has some views. You got the Airstream, which you're almost done renovating. You got a Porsche, 911. No, 1983 911 SC Targa. Found it, found it on eBay and just, I mean, the guy, the guy gave it away. Just gave it away. Yeah. I'm I'm without words. I adore you, but I kind of hate you a little. Let's let's keep going. What's your plan? We're we're right now. We're living life and having fun. But you know, I just got my general contractor's license, selling some more land that I have, and I am getting ready to start building some Airbnb houses. The the Airstream life on the sixty whatever acres in the hills, twenty minutes north of Asheville, is a serenity home. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. This this is, and that's. 
I, I dare you to tell me it's all that much different than being single-handing on a 34-foot boat, other than I've never seen an Airstream sink. Um, I think they can. Uh, the, I, well, I'm sure if you drove it into a lake, it would. Uh, <laughs> but, but the solitude, the sense of self-reliance, the, 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 the moderate degree of protection from the elements... Um, you know, you're not living in a tent, but you're not living in a in a in a in a condo either. You're not you're not unaware of what's happening outside. Um, right. If you're if you're on a boat and it's 104 outside, it, you're going to know it, even if you've got enough tricks up your sleeve to keep your life somewhat comfortable aboard. If it's 23 degrees and you're on a boat, you're going to know it even if you have ways to keep the boat warm. And I think that's a parallel to the Airstream. As a matter of fact, I mean, geographically, it's a big move. Philosophically, I don't feel like it's it's the the biggest move at all. Um, Is is the Porsche a daily driver, or does does it sit in a pretty little garage until you get to take it to the track? So the Porsche, since I can work on things, I knew that I could afford, I had the money to buy it, but there's one of these... There's something you should always ask yourself, especially new aspiring boat owners. You can afford to buy the boat. You can afford to buy the Porsche. But can you afford to fix the fucker? Right. Can you you maintain this thing to the proper standards it needs to be maintained for? And we're talking a lot of money. Right. so the Porsche, uh, I, I was just going to leave it up here. And I was like, well, who cares if it breaks? I'll, I'll just fix it later. It can sit in the garage. I had a garage for it to sit in. Um, but slowly but surely, it wasn't fast enough. It wasn't sporty enough. It wasn't <laughs> handle. It didn't handle enough. And then I found out about track. Oh. And, um, yeah, I have to say that is um, – some guys on track say that it's, it's almost as good as sex. And I'll, I'll say it's, it might be. It's, it's probably more reliable. <laughs> um. <laughs> um so how how close to where you are is is a track where you like to spend your time on the Porsche and have you at this track um only tested yourself by trying to get better and do timed laps or have you participated in class races no, I definitely am not at that point yet. Um, we're doing what's called HPDE, High Performance Driver Education. And it's a somewhat safe way to be on the track with other people. You've got to give pass-bys. There's different levels. I'm just now getting to the point where I'm so low. Um, they put instructors in the car with you for a long time. And, um, you know, you got to give pass. When someone gets on your butt, you gotta, you got to give them a pass-by at specific points on the track. So it's relatively safe until you're the one that loses talent and you spin the car out, which I do all the time. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I'm just like, I can take that faster. Um, um, okay, hold on a second. Pause. Um, first, you, you're, you're a little younger than I am. How old are you? Uh, 47. You've grown up in a, a hands-on world uh, i'm i'm confident you probably drove very confidently rather young in your life and were never timid behind the wheel you're behind you know the you're in the cockpit of the boat at the tiller at the wheel whatever it may be i don't see timidity being a huge part of your life i've always wondered this cuz i literally without exaggeration could drive a stick shift when i was 8 because that's yeah. life in the midwest and that's where i grew up and i could buzz around in in mud on a farm when I was 10, I knew how to do it. Driving a boat came a lot later and was a lot harder. Um, 
I'm wondering this. When you're in that Porsche with an instructor and you're on the track, you already know how to drive, but you're learning how to drive in a way that, that you don't learn from dad on the way to, you know, Sears to get back to school clothes or on the way to grandma and grandpa's house or whatever it may be. How humbling is it when you know already that you're a pretty bright person and a pretty respectably good driver to get at that wheel when you've got some gray on your chin and have someone sit next to you and tell you you're doing it wrong? Oh, it's definitely humbling. And then... You know, they, they slow you down or they do this or, or you lose your time. You know, they you spin out and you end up off the track. Um, things happen quickly. You know, when you're they're always like eyes up, you know, you're looking 100 yards in front of you. You're you're in a turn. You're not even looking at the turn anymore. You're already looking at the next turn. Right. Like you've already computed in your head how you're going to drive through this turn and you're not watching yourself do it. It's but there's so many different levels of, of, of growth in that. And you're you're finding the edge of yourself, you're finding the edge of, of the car, you're finding the edge of, of everything. And then you're fi- trying to do it consistently. Because um, that's what driving racing is, is consistency. And sure. it's a matter of, of, of smoothness, finesse and consistency. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty humbling. And you know, of course, I build the car. I built the suspension. I put a new engine in it. Like, you know, I did all of these things. So it gives me even that more of that, like, humbling. Like, finally, I get to this point, like, last year of driving the car. And it's like, they're finally, you know, everybody's just like, holy shit, that's a fast car. And you've got it set up really well. Oh. And I'm, I'm starting to drive times that are impressing me. We don't, we don't do times, but times do. do, they, do they, they say they don't count, but they do. Um, when I'm passing cars that are two hundred thousand worth two hundred thousand dollars more than mine, you know I'm learning that it's not the car. You can be out there in a Miata, or you can be out there in a twin turbo GT3 RS three hundred thousand dollar car. If you don't have balls to drive it, you're not going to be able to do anything with it. And I've learned that quite a bit. It's just the driver. Um, is the person, not the car. What was your uh, scariest moment driving? I was going to say racing, driving, whatever you want to call it. You know, I don't know. that. I guess the couple of times I've spun out, I mean, there's definitely times I go into these curves and I'm just like, holy shit, I am going way too fast. I came into this curve way too hot. <laughs> Hold on a second. Let, <laughs> tell me, let, I'm going to re-ask my question. Tell me about the first time you spun out, because there's a hell of a difference between me doing donuts in in the Kmart parking lot when I was 14, you know, in dad's Datsun pickup truck um, and hitting a a, a corner too hot in a 911 and and feeling that that rear end let go. Yeah, I mean, as you get better with the older 911s, you've got to learn to recover. But there's also a point of knowing when to give up. And when you give up, you literally take your hands off the wheel, put them on your chest, and you put both feet down, meaning one foot on the clutch and one foot on the brake all the way to the floor. And where you stop, you don't know. And This is what they teach you. Yeah. You're going in a corner, you're losing it. And all of a sudden, the ass end starts squealing, and it comes out. And if you don't recover, it'll, it goes out, and it comes, it comes back hard. 
And then it becomes a lawn dart because the engine's in the back of the car. So the heaviest part of the car will, it goes in front of you. And all of a sudden, you're looking at the cars coming at you. Um, oh. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty intense, but it's also, honestly, it's kind of scary to say this. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You're, like, spinning around. You're, like, holy shit, there's dust everywhere. And then you stop. You're just, like... Wow, that was kind of fun. Is it predictably within reason going to happen such that you might spin out and there's a whatever, a, a stretch of gravel or grass or whatever they put in front of you to help slow you down? Yes. Yeah, yeah. These these, these tracks are the tracks I was on. Roebling is the one that I've probably spun out the most. Um, I've been there the most. That's down near, down near Savannah. Yeah, they're, they're designed for this. Like they're designed to have big swaths of grass and sand and you know they know the areas that people are going to spin or potentially spin out on i mean but there's also potential to really mess yourself sure. up hit a, hit a wall or something yeah. but uh for the most part they're safe and that's why they're they're designed this way and you know they've got tire berms or, or sand berms or whatever to try mm -hmm. to catch you not that you can't screw your car up right and not that you can't die sure but they've made it as safe as possible and you know we all have to wear helmets and we all have to have when we have to drive with our windows down mm -hmm. at all times um so yeah it's a matter of finding that that safe um you feel somewhat safe there i mean i know that it's dangerous but i definitely i don't mind that the there's i just don't mind the spin out because the worst part about it is you're screwing your tires up yeah but you know unless you unless you have other cars around you it's relatively somewhat safe thing to happen was was it hard to learn to let go of the wheel yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of decades of, you know, turn into the skid that gets implanted in your brain. And all of a sudden they're like, no, no, let go. Yeah. No, I, you know, I didn't. The first car I had was a 99996 was the first year of the 911 series. They went to water cooled and I had that for a couple of years. And that was the first one I took on the track. And it was actually my 40th birthday. It was my, it was my birthday. It was a, the track day happened on my birthday. I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to make this happen. <laughs> um, so I actually spun that car out that time and I didn't get to gain a lot of experience in it. But yeah, later on, I noticed in my car in the new, the, the 83, um, there was one time I really remember like fighting and like it, it, it broke left, it broke right. And then I knew at that point, I had to let go of the fight because if you keep fighting, what you can end up having, you end up, you can end up shooting back on the track or you end up, the spin can carry, the spin's going to carry you off the track. It's going to carry you in a straight line, but the more you fight it, the more you might stay on the track, the more you might get hit. Right. Um, so I remember this one time very clearly of like, it's all slow motion when it happens in your brain, but all of a sudden I'm just like, oh shit, feed in. And I I, threw, I I put my um cross my chest with my hands, and then I watched watched the steering wheel just go, <laughs> you know, it just spun, and it just just spun back and forth so quickly, rapidly, and then you know the car settled in. I stopped, no big deal, ready to go back on the track, uh, find a clear space and go back on. How was that heart rate? Yeah, your heart rate gets the, the adrenaline, you know. Does your car have a name? Veronica. What's why Veronica? I don't know. 
just kind of came to me. Um, I mean, you got to name everything. Everything's got a soul. You, you don't have to sell me on this. My cars all have names. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up that way, but I, I can assure you there's you know, 45 or 50 or 55 percent of the audience out there right now staring at their laptop or radio or whatever, shaking their head going, name a car. Um, one last question. What What is happiness to Banff Luther? What is happiness? It's kind of evolving, you know? We, we keep going after that next challenge um, and finishing it and completing it and then finding that next, uh, that next project. That's fantastic. I'll accept it. Sounds about right, too. Um, Banff, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, for telling stories about all of it, uh, some of the happy ones and some of the tough ones. Uh, appreciate you sharing everything with us today, and, and I hope we get to talk with you again. Thank you very much for having me on, on the show. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Seabird is made by Boat Radio. It is written and produced by John Herlig and Mike McDowell. Thank you to DM Perfection for our theme song, Welcome to Neverland. And thank you also to Megan Agresto for her perfect voiceover work. We are very grateful. For everyone here at Seabird, I am Christopher Pruitt saying thanks for listening. Hi, it's John again. Be sure to join us next week when my co-host Mike McDowell dives deep into the extraordinary mind of a man named Imran. Imran was born in Karachi, Pakistan. He's a polymath, a genius, a truly skilled sportsman, a kidnapping victim, a husband, a father, and happens to also be the operator of a boutique investment fund. He fluently speaks Russian, Hindi, Korean, and German, and spoke his fifth language, English, when he sat down with Mike McDowell recently in Mallorca to tell his story. And of course, a special thank you to our sponsor, The Boat Galley and TheBoatGalley.com. If life has you dreaming of boats, sign up for the fantastic and free weekly newsletter at theboatgalley.com.
spending and wasting your spending just one more day. Pretending, pretending you're wasting your spending. For you, you've got no time to be true to yourself.